On today's podcast, we are joined by a longtime contributor of the gaming world. Welcome to Tabletop Shop. Welcome back to the Tabletop Shop Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Cody Pennington, and joining us today is a special guest who has made quite an impact on the gaming community. This guest is a designer with a total of 57 credits on Board Game Geek, the earliest of which was published back in 1992. Please welcome to the shop, Mr. Tom Lehman. Tom, how is your life? It's pretty good. I mean, you know, uh, like everyone, the Pandemic wasn't the easiest, although having worked on the pandemic expansions, I had some idea what to expect. <laughs> you had some experience, huh? Yeah. Or at least I understood what was at stake and what was going on from a very uh, early Well, Tom, I just want to say thank you for having a detailed personal website. It, it can be tricky to find much background information in one place about game designers specifically, but you've made my job a lot easier by having such a place. I'm glad that you found it interesting, you know. How long has that website been up? What what inspired you to put it in place? Um, it's been up quite a few years. Originally, I was just putting up a sort of basic ludography, and I don't even know whether, you know, I, I only tend hmm. to update it every couple of years, so it's probably slightly out of date. Oh, With okay. Board Game Geek, uh, you know, there's less of a, a need to have an online ludography. Um, and then I also put it up for variants sure. because uh, my friends and I often play games and sometimes we make a small rules tweak and I wanted to collect them. Well, like I said, I mean, it makes my job a lot easier, <laughs> but I enjoyed reading about some of your, your background details. That's actually what I'd like to start off the podcast with. You mentioned growing up both overseas and in the U.S., not really... Um, a specific location that you remained at for a long period of time, perhaps? I, what, what was that childhood like? Well, it certainly gave me an appreciation of many different cultures and history. My father was an economist working for the Agency for International Development, which is a sub-agency of the U.S. State Department. So we would alternate either being around D.C., where he would be uh, working, or we would be overseas. And so I was born in Paris, and I grew up in Tunisia, Indonesia, and Korea, as well as around DC. Wow. Okay. So how often would you move back and forth between those different areas? A typical assignment in AID is for three years, um, but sometimes if you have a good relationship with the people you're working with, it can be extended to be five years or six years. Um, hmm. So, for example, the longest I ever was in one place as a child was, in fact, Tunisia, where we lived in the ancient city of Carthage, uh, which is a wow. suburb of Tunis, the capital. And so my love of history, I'm sure, was inspired by the Roman ruins that were literally all around me. Hmm. Growing up overseas, we didn't have many games, right? You know, there wasn't, you know, we had small weight allowances when we traveled. And sure. so we just had, you know, Monopoly and Risk and Stratego, and that's about it. 
But my dad uh, had made some variants to these games because, you know, we were playing them over and over again. And in particular, as an economist, he looked at Monopoly and added some variants that actually made the game, I think, better. Um, And uh, that certainly was an influence in me seeing from a very early age that games could be modified. Hmm. As an economist yourself, um, what aspect of Monopoly would you say is the least sensible? Well, Monopoly at its heart is a really good trading game for about 15 minutes, surrounded by a really awful setup, you know, creating the train as you go around the boards and start buying up properties, and then Mm -hmm. a really long, drawn-out resolution phase where you slowly drive people into bankruptcy. And, you know, but the center core of it, this trading game, is actually quite good. Um, But what surrounds it is certainly, by modern standards, horrible. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's a game, perhaps, that laid a very strong foundation for the board gaming world, and yet it is now uh, looked upon with distaste. Um, well, among you know gamers, hobbyists, that's certainly true. Whether mass market, it's looked upon with distaste is a little less true, although I suspect that hmm. that's true. I mean, I had the experience a number of years ago where this was like 10, 15 years ago, where credit card monopoly had just come out. And I was uh, spending time at Christmas with uh, another family who had gotten it for their children. And the children were fascinated by the credit card stuff. And, you know, so I was playing with them. And that lasted for about 20 minutes. And then they were totally bored with monopoly and didn't want to play. So, you know, whether it works in the mass market, I'm not sure. But for that family, which was not a family of gamers, it certainly failed. Uh, But the fantasy of having credit cards, now that the children were interested in. Teaching life lessons early for how to use such a tool. Yeah. Well, beyond the classics like uh, Monopoly and um, you mentioned Risk, I, I forget which others. I, I guess what games brought you into what we might call the the modern board gaming world? Well, there was a long period before that, right? Um, there sure. was, uh, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you, I suspect. And <laughs> there was the um, 3M games in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, games like Twixt and Feudal and Acquire and um, uh, so on that uh, were sort of what I would say the first games that were pretty much on par with modern uh, Euro games. And Acquire by Sid Saxon is still considered a classic in the industry. And in fact, my very first game I ever tried my hand at designing uh, took some ideas from Monopoly and Acquire. And uh, I did this at age 14, and I revamped it like 15 years later when I did my first published game, Fast Food Franchise. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like many starting 
uh, creators, you're sort of doing a bit of pastiche early on where you take things you like out of games and things you think might be improved and you put them together into a game. And so that was my uh, uh, first um, experience uh, designing. But another thing that happened, I was a teenager in Korea and there I was playing a lot of war games with serving officers and diplomats, you know, adults. Hmm. And um, at age 15, I reverse engineered my first game. And this was Flying Circus, which was a real war one plane versus plane, uh, 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 you know, aces fighting game that appeared in Strategy and Tactics magazine. And I figured out, you know, what all the formulas they had used to come up with each plane, which had its own, you know, little large card that you put some kits on to track its speed and altitude and uh, yeah. ammo and so on. And the ability to figure out those formulas and then have go to the library and, you know, get a book on World War I flying planes and make another 40 planes you know, that were perfectly hmm. compatible with the game and, you know, had they wanted to do an expansion, could have been publishable. That was a big experience for me because, you know, now I sort of understood some of the actual mechanics of, okay, how do you actually create something? And so that was a big uh, step leading me towards games. Um during college and uh, my time afterwards in industry, I, you know, continued to play games. I did a lot of role-playing, uh, Dungeons and & Dragons, and many other role-playing systems. I yeah. played 1829 and then 1830, the 18xx games, when they first came out. And I wasn't doing a lot of design at that point. Although for games like Magic Realm and Talisman, I would design extra characters. Uh, the daughter of one of my friends uh, really liked playing Talisman with us. So I designed another 16 Talisman characters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I was doing little bits of design, but not a whole lot. What are your or some of your favorite games now that you still enjoy playing to this day, whether they're recent or came out 20 years ago? Um, I'll ignore my own games for this. Okay. Uh, some <laughs> games that I make a special effort to play every year are Princess of Florence, where I think it's a really good game when you have five experienced players. Hmm. And I like Concordia. Uh, I'm always behind on games, but some games from uh, just a couple years ago, uh, Dune Imperium, I've been playing a lot recently, and yeah. um, Ark Nova I've played, and I think that's quite a good two-player game. I'm not convinced mm. by it being better when you add more players. <laughs> it takes quite a bit of time to play for the experience. And I'm sure that compounds the more players you add. At, at two, well, this is something that Brian Bankler, who has a website or blog, The Dow of Gaming, he talks about fixed fun games. 
games where there's a certain amount of fun and you can sort of divide it up by the number of players. And if you add more players, all you're doing is sort of reducing the fun per player. Hmm. And I think Arc Nova definitely falls into that category, that adding more players really doesn't add a lot to that experience. And I could argue that it actually makes the experience worse, not just because you're spending longer for the same amount of, t- of fun, but I don't think the interaction improves as you add more players. I think it actually gets worse. Hmm. That's a good point. That's a, a great scale to to measure certain games by. I mean, some some games scale just fine when you add more players, and that's that's a strength of the game, I think. But yeah, there definitely are games. Right. And from a design point of view, I think that's a good question that a designer should be asking, right? If you design a game that's from two to four players, say, and it works well at two, one of your questions that you should ask is, well what am I doing to make the three and the four player experience different and better? You know, what is the gain from adding more players? So Hmm. for example, in my game, raise Arcana, I have some powers that copy the essences that another player has. So if you have 10 black essences, 10 death essences, and I have a power that says, I can use this power to copy one player's death essence and get that same number of Elon or red essence, then that power might not ever be useful in a two-player game, right? You might not Hmm. be doing a plan that involves death essence. But as you add more players, the odds that some player will be doing something with death essences makes that power far more interesting. And so that's an example where having those copy powers in the game means that adding more players changes your evaluation of those powers and suddenly you have Mm. something more to think about and some more player interaction. Yeah, that really makes me think of Wingspan. Have you played Wingspan? I did play Wingspan. Yeah, that's there's a variety of different classes of powers in that game on each card and one of them is an once between turns power so it only activates if someone not on your turn does something but obviously the more players you have the more chances you have of being able to activate that power before it comes back to your turn and it it makes it a very different experience if you're playing with four or five players versus two right and that's a a fine example of what i'm talking about that you know If you design the game, it's not only that it has to work from two to four, but you should ask yourself, how is the experience different at each of those player points? Sure. Well, speaking of multiplayer experiences on your website, and then actually just previously um, in this podcast, you mentioned some role-playing pursuits, uh, including D&D, LARPing, and on your website, you even mentioned um, LARP design. So what what got you into that specific realm of gaming? Um. In the uh, early 90s, I was living in Boston, and so I got uh, made some friends. There was overlap between board gamers and role players and LARPers, 
And there was the Society for Interactive Literature, which had started a lot of the early LARPing in the late 80s. Um, and that was centered around MIT. And I met a bunch of those people. I played in some of their games. And then later on, two of them moved out to uh, the Silicon Valley because one of them was pursuing a degree at Stanford. And we started running SIL games in the Bay Area. And I co-wrote several games with them. And I served as a GM in games that I had earlier been a player in. So hmm. that's where my LARPing experience came from. Do you enjoy the, the GMing experience? It's different. Um, I mean, the LARPing GM, if you're doing the games we would typically do were between 50 and 75 players over a weekend. And wow. when you're dealing with that many players and you have a GM team typically from four to six GMs, and tracking what's going on in the game, um, adjudicating things becomes a real issue when, you know, 75 players and only five GMs to go around, you are rushing uh, from one group to another adjudicating. So you really want to have as many things be capable of self-adjudication by the players. And mm. you really want as many things to be very simple for the GMs to adjudicate. You know, they come and they turn in something and they say, is this the right formula? And you look it up in your binder and you say yes or no, right? Uh, you want to be able to adjudicate very quickly. So then there ends up being a lot of system design that you have to do when uh, creating these LARPs for the GMs to handle. And that's very different than a tabletop role-playing game where it's typically, mm. say, one GM and four or five players. And now you you can handle those players a lot more efficiently <laughs> and you can do a lot more improv and you can, you know, um, uh, cater to each player and give them the time they need. Whereas in a LARP, you as a GM, you have to be have to really have a lot of systems and uh, you don't have the time to do a lot of individual improvs. With producing LARPs, is there some sort of publication process that involves that or is it more just working within your own community to get a group of people together to play it? I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this because I haven't, I'm not involved in LARPs um, since about 2010, uh, gotcha. the people that I'd been working with moved back to the East coast. So I don't see them anymore. And, and, you know, the LARPing scene has moved on and evolved in different ways. Um, I feel like there's a huge opportunity in LARPs to really make use of the fact that almost everyone has a phone nowadays and that yeah. a lot of the, you know, mechanical ways we would do things could be done by phones really easily. And I think a team of programmers could create a set of apps and uh, ways of, of distributing information and of doing a lot of the common mechanisms such that 
then LARP creators could just plug in their content and go. And that hasn't happened yet. Um, but I hmm. think there's an opportunity there, whether it's a financial opportunity, that's a different issue. <laughs> sure. I wonder if we'll see some sort of rise in that realm here in the next few years. Right. I mean, LARPing online is a big question mark for me. I mean, you know, imagine a Zoom call with 75 people. That's not going to work that well. <laughs> and you can do a bunch of role-playing. I mean, during the pandemic, we moved our role-playing online, as did many, many people. And you can use, you know, sort of the Discord rooms to separate and have subchats, and people can move from room to room. But whether that works from a LARPing point of view, I don't know. I'd have to play some and run some. But it may be that instead of moving to the phone and large in-person gatherings, that it'll move online and use some sort of room chat system instead. Hmm. I mean, that's another way that LARPing could evolve. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. We have the technology for it now. It's kind of what defines our modern culture. Well, it's one thing that defines us, but, you know, <laughs> stories, content, I think, are still most important. And people want to create stories. And the technology is really about enabling people to, uh, to create the stories, not about hmm. creating them themselves. Although, you know, some people will argue that AI and the recent developments in chat may mean that, you know, we have AIs generating uh, adventures. Who knows? Yeah, I guess only time will tell. You've had a variety of occupational endeavors. So at what point did you decide you wanted to pursue game design full time? I made enough money to be stupid. <laughs> so my academic right. background is economics and systems modeling. and mm -hmm. But I shifted over into high tech and I was one of the first 50 people at Oracle. And we had gone public, and so I had some money that could either be used to buy a house in the Bay Area, which is quite expensive, um, or could be used to pursue a dream. And I went the latter uh, route. Uh, some people think <laughs> I'm crazy. And um, uh, so I started a game company. And as many people have said, the, the, the best way to make a small fortune in gaming is to start with a large fortune and then lose <laughs> it. Um, so I teamed up with, um, I started a company called Prism Games. I teamed up with Tim Jim Games, which had done the game Outpost. And I contributed to the Outpost Expert game. And then I published six games in the 90s. However, Magic the Gathering killed us. We had become oh, no. cash flow positive. That is, you know, we were actually, you know, making as much money as we spent. Um, but mm -hmm. then when Magic came out, all the retail stores hoarded their cash to buy Magic and stopped reordering and our reorders went from you know like 600 units to six you know wow percent drop or to one percent of what they had been 
And um, it turned out that Richard Garfield was a fan of fast food franchise, and he actually offered me a job at Wizards. And I turned him down. And that's always, you know, one of those life decisions that you wonder, you know, should, how my life would have been different had I gone that route instead of the route I did. But yeah. I was still trying to make Prism Games work. And I flailed for a couple of years, returned to high tech as a tech writer. And I started doing freelance design. And that's when I did Magellan or Pizarro and Company and To Court the King, a dice game, and got involved with the Puerto Rico card game, which uh, influenced San Juan, which became the actual official Puerto Rico hmm. card game. So those were, you know, sort of my journey out of high tech, back into high tech, and doing both publishing and uh, independent game design. So you're you're a very forward thinker, um, as I've discovered on on your website, and I guess that kind of inspires a question: if if there was no Magic the Gathering, if it never happened, what do you think the current gaming world would look like? Well, so Jim Hovati, who was the uh, one of the two founders of Tim Jim Games, had a game called a Mystic War. And he felt that he came very close to a lot of the ideas of Magic the Gathering. I'm not completely convinced by this, but it hmm. says to me, and he published Mystic War almost the same time as Magic the Gathering. And, you know, it says that those ideas were in the air. So I suspect something you know, and that's not to take anything away from Richard and his creativity and his ideas and from Peter Atkinson asking for a dueling game and all of that. But hmm. I think something was going to happen somewhere in that space. So I think that, you know, yes, we might not have magic. It might not have gone the collectible route. Um, but, you know, I suspect that, like, the living card games would be out still. Sure. But like you mentioned, I'm curious if that would have impacted production of other games. I mean, saying going from 600 units to six units being sold. I guess, well, I guess that'd be really right. But yes, that, I'm sure that a lot of, well, I mean, a lot of small struggling role-playing companies went, bust in the in the mid 90s and hmm. they were seeing their uh, their pool shrinking D&D was seeing its audience shrinking it's part of what led to it being sold um TSR you know going under there were lots of other things going on um but role playing was on the downside a lot of indie board games were struggling and um collectible card games sort of became this you know took up a lot of the space, but it also led to a whole bunch more collectible card games and, hmm. you know, and a lot of innovation in a new area. So, you know, it both took away some things and it gave some things. Hard to know what would have been or what would have not been. <laughs> yeah. I think that we would have seen something, but perhaps not in the collectible format. And, um, you know, and I think, 
something along the living card games might have emerged uh, instead. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, remember, Magic has been incredibly influential to a lot of designers. I mean, Donald Vaccarino mm-hmm. with Dominion was inspired by uh, Magic. Uh, Race for the Galaxy, in part, was, you know, my desire to have lots and lots of variety was, you know, somewhat inspired by Magic and so on. Hmm. So, you know, it it is a seminal game in the sense of influencing lots of other games. Yeah, that's a good point with the variety. I mean, that that necessitates really good balancing too, because the more different components or resources or ways cards function that you add, um, you have to make sure that they're all compatible and that they don't overshadow each other. Right. And, you know, that's the thing that I felt... I mean, San Juan is a fine game. Don't, you know, and I, and I get a royalty from it. So, you know, don't, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I'm not putting it down, but I felt that there was a missed opportunity around variety with San Juan. So I went to Hmm. Stefan Brook of Alea and told him that I was going to do, you know, the game that became Race for the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And and offered Alea first right of refusal on it because you know I was building on some stuff that I had done for the Puerto Rico card game that got used in San Juan, uh, which mm-hmm. is where my royalty comes from. And you know I felt that the variety button could be pushed a lot more than it had been pushed in San Juan, and you know mm-hmm. that was one of the impetuses for Race for the Galaxy. Uh, race for the Galaxy, not only built on ideas from the Puerto Rico card game prototype that I had done, uh, it also built on an unpublished CCG that I had designed in the late 90s before I decided to close down Prism Games. And that was a game called Duel from the Stars, uh, Duel for the Stars. And that drew on two themes in science fiction from Fred Pohl, the idea of a very powerful, vanished alien species that all we find are their artifacts, and David Brin, Hmm. who had done his uplift novels, and all about uplifting uh, species to sentience. And so, you know, I had those ideas already in Duel for the Stars and, you know, combining that with some of the ideas for the Puerto Rico card game prototype that I'd done and the uh, idea of wanting to push on variety, all of those ideas came together uh, to produce Race for the Galaxy. Was the the sci-fi concepts that was really being explored a lot in that time? Um, I guess, for example. uh, Actually, science fiction, at least for the German publishers, was considered a completely dead field, right? Really? Yes. Um, uh, Alan Moon had done Adromeda, and it had failed. Um, Several other uh, attempts at doing science fiction had failed. I mean, the Catan space game did okay, but nothing great. And the Hmm. German publishers as a whole were very down on science fiction. And the fact that I was doing a science fiction game, I think is part of why both Alea and Hansengluck turned down Race for the Galaxy. Hmm. 
is that they were convinced that science fiction couldn't sell. And uh, the success of Race for the Galaxy, I think, you know, I was very fortunate. You know, here I was doing something that the rest of the industry was ignoring. And I think its success, you know, now there are lots and lots of games uh, for science fiction. And obviously, you know, there are fads and trends. I'm not saying Race started it all in any sense. But I think I was very fortunate to be one of the few people doing science fiction in 2007. Yeah, even even so, if it wasn't as popular in the board gaming world, it seemed like in culture, I mean, between movies, TV shows, um, books especially, I mean, Dune from the 60s and then Ender's Game in the sure, 80s. And we there... were sort of in a lull there, right? You know, we'd had the Star sure. Wars prequel tr- trilogy, and then, you know, nothing was happening with Star Wars uh, for a period there. Uh, hmm. you know, the Dune movie had come out, and then nothing was happening there. Star Trek had had a, you know, a couple, you know, a series of movies, but then that was slowing down. So there was a lull, and then you know we can see with terraforming Mars and the Martian movie and all this other stuff. Now there's a much bigger cultural interest in space. Hmm. I'm curious for for your own interest. Um at least in designing the the thematics of Race for the Galaxy and the subsequent games, what specific sci-fi media out there um, influenced you, do you think? Other than the uh, uh, Fred Pohl and David Brin influences, abs- uh, almost nothing. Um, that hmm, is, okay. Uh, the themes... And, you know, theme means so many different things when it comes to board games. For some, theme means, you know, it has wonderful bits. You know, oh, my God, glow-in-the-dark miniatures, the game is dripping with theme. <laughs> and other people, the theme is lies in the setting. You know, does is this a setting that speaks to me? And other people, it's, well, how well do the mechanics mesh with the setting? And other people, Hmm. it's, well, is there a plot, right? You know, uh, you know, like, are we vampire hunters trying to find Dracula? Is there a situation, a plot? You know, that's what theme means to them. And other people, it's, well, is there narrative content? You know, is there a sense of progression? Uh, Do we play individual characters? So, you know, theme is used all these different ways in our industry, and so it means almost something, you know, it's like the proverbial elephant, you know, it means something different to every <laughs> different person. Sure. For me, and notice none of these uses of theme is what your English teacher talked about when they talked about theme in literature, right? The greater meaning of a work, right? Mm. No one yeah. uses theme that way when it comes to board games. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so I I think about both theme in the literary sense and theme in a lot of these other senses. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying that we should stop using the word theme for all these different things. I mean, it would be nice if we came to some agreement about, you know, what theme meant. But, you know, <laughs> there are other fields where theme is used in a different way. I mean, in music, a musical theme is something pretty specific, and it's not 
the greater meaning of a musical work. Yeah. Right. Um, but in terms of the thematic considerations that came into race, I had been, these were issues that I had dealt with in my earlier prism games, age of exploration and time agent and throne world issues about indigenous people issues about, um, uh, servitor races, you know, stuff like that, that I wanted to tell a story about. And I was also thinking about the whole category of what's called four X games and mm-hmm. about military versus economic views of history. And those heavily influenced where I went with race. So, a 4X game, and they're often set in space. The 4Xs stand for explore, right? Expand, exploit, and exterminate. And if you think about it, you know, you step back and you look at it, that's like, you know, all the evils of imperialism summed up in a pithy, you know, uh, uh, slogan. And I didn't want to do a game that was imperialism in space, right? Hmm. And this is something that I had struggled with when I did my game, my earlier game, Throne World, which is a dudes on the map game where you're fighting, you know, the evil empire and I, and you are building little empires of your own. And I, you know, that's the, you know, a pretty classic uh, imperialistic theme. You're taking over worlds, you're exploiting them. And I didn't want to go that route in Throne World. So I made it a game where the empire had been weakened by a great plague and that the races that were rebelling against the empire were artificial, were uh, you know, essentially servitor races, races that had been uplifted, although I never used the word uplift in Throne World, um, and were fighting their, their evil masters, saying, we don't want to be your genetic slaves anymore. And, you know, that was a setting that I felt comfortable with, with doing dudes on a map. Because hmm. now it's, you know, you're fighting the evil empire and you are rebelling against them. And, you know, you're not just being the imperialist out conquering things, you're actually attacking the empire. And so with Race for the Galaxy, you know, I wanted to go with those same sort of uh, concepts. And one of the things that is central to Race for the Galaxy is the distinction between military and non-military worlds. You can Mm -hmm. attack the military worlds and conquer them, but you can't attack the non-military worlds. And if you look at some of the comments about Race for the Galaxy on BoardGameGeek, you'll see people who are like, this really pisses me off. You know, why can't I take my space Marines and go attack that artist colony? And it, and they and the people who say this, they always use the artist colony as their target. Hmm. You know, there's something about artists just being happy and creating that just irks the heck out of them. <laughs> 
And, you know, and the reason that I won't let you do that, right, the rules forbid it, you know, is twofold. There's sort of the in-story reason, which is that we're at the very beginning of galactic expansion. Jump drive has just been invented. We're going out. And it took hundreds of years, if you look historically, for the ships that went out to the New World to actually be able to conquer each other. The first colony, you know, transferred between people is over 250 years after Columbus. You know, hmm. you had the technology to impact the Aztecs and the Incas, but you didn't have the technology to war with each other. And uh, it, you know, you had to completely redevelop ships in order to be able to handle guns. Um, the late uh, uh, Richard Burke once told me uh, an anecdote about the development of cannons, where you know the Spanish essentially mounted a bunch of cannons on a galley, thinking, "Oh, ooh, now that we have big cannons, we can you know fire them and destroy other ships." And they fired it, and the ship promptly healed over and sank. <laughs> right. And they yeah. ended up having to go to all these systems of wheeled carriages and ropes to, a, to accommodate the recoil and designing the ships to bow out. If you ever on the um, old iron sides, you'll see this in order to accommodate the recoil of cannons. And they had to place the cannons much lower to the water line. You know, it took hmm. hundreds of years of evolving before people could actually fight on the seas. And so, you know, my approach in Race for the Galaxy is to say, yeah, the technology is not there for you to go attack someone who is at the same level of you, you know, as countries, as, as settled worlds in this universe that you can go attack a small rebel outpost or you can go attack a less technologically developed place, right? And those are the world's yeah. defenses. But you can't just go attack the artist colony. It takes more effort. And by doing that, by separating the worlds into the military and the non-military, now I have this ability for the non-military worlds to be these little economic engines, right? To produce um, uh, uh, goods and then consume them for victory points. Yeah. And when you do that, suddenly you have a different way and a different story that you're telling. You're, you're running your empire not to exploit them, but to make the people happy. Right? <laughs> and this is getting at that military versus economic views of history right? We all talk about Alexander the Great, right? You know, he conquered all these things and made a big empire that lasted for less than 50 years, right? Hmm. He died and it broke up, right? Whereas what about, say, the Phoenicians? They started up their city-states in about 1400 BC, and they lasted until around 200 BC, right? They had a long run, 1,200 years. They brought Iron yeah. Age technology to the Western Med. They gave us the phonetic language, right? Hmm. You know, they had a lot of influence on the world. And yet, people, most history books, more or less ignore the Phoenicians. 
right? You know, they're they're written with this big emphasis on big empires and conquerors and all that. And I wanted a game where you can win by making your people happy, by being an economic power, or you can win yeah. militarily. You know, Race for the Galaxy is a very sandboxy game. You can win in all sorts of different ways. And that was certainly one of the the driving things in the design of the game. Hmm. Now, the non-military and the military also connect up in a particular way. There's something called the contact specialist, which was an idea in science fiction about people who would go down and make first contact between a galactic empire and individuals. And, you know, that's that sort of other path. You can be a big imperialist in Race for the Galaxy, or you could do something radical like talk to people and spend some of your um, wealth to bring them into your empire voluntarily. And to me, you know, that's an important theme in Race for the Galaxy. And, you know, in the expansions, you know, that gets extended. You have a galactic mediator and a pan-galactic security council and the pan-galactic league and the Universal Peace Institute, right? You know, that theme gets developed in the expansions. Hmm. Well, then you took the idea of that game um, and translated over to Roll for the Galaxy. At what point was that an idea in the mind of Tom Lehman? Well, it's really... Roll is really Weiwa Huan's game, right? He's the hmm. lead designer and the driver on that game. And the impetus okay. was someone had submitted a dice game, you know, supposedly to be the Race for the Galaxy dice game. And Jay Tummelson, you know, had been submitted to Rio Grande. And Jay Tummelson brought it along to the gathering, and Weiwa and I played it. And we ended the game, we looked at each other, we said, well, this is a fine dice game, but it's not the Race for the Galaxy dice game. Hmm. You know, we knew that it didn't fit with the Race for the Galaxy um, uh, games. And so then we each had some ideas, but Weiwa, you know, took the lead and he drove Roll for the Galaxy. But you know, it came out of that experience of playing another dice game and going, no, this isn't Race for the Galaxy. Interesting. Okay. But then we progressed to uh, Jump Drive as a simpler variation, but I'm more specifically thinking of New Frontiers, the board game version. Right. Uh, what, was the, what was the inception of that one? Well, you know, I've heard lots and lots of criticisms of Race for the Galaxy over the years. And New Frontiers is, in some sense, a response to them. So, um, hmm. you know, plus, well, so some people really dislike one of the central mechanisms of Race for the Galaxy, which is that you spend some cards to buy other cards. Some people love it. That's a wonderful angst, a, a way of, you know, the cards represent your opportunities. And if I pursue mm -hmm. this opportunity, I don't get to pursue those opportunities, right? It makes yeah. a thematic sense. And some people love that tension, but other people hate it. They feel like <laughs> it makes them too angsty and, and they 
feel like, oh my God, if I spend this card, I'm going to regret it later. You know, why didn't I keep that card? And for mm -hmm. them, it's not a good tension. It's, it's a bad tension. So one thing in New Frontiers is that you buy things with money. You don't have to give up things to get other things. Um, another thing is some people really love the bluffing interaction with Race for the Galaxy, but other people, and you know, that tends to be people like card games, right? Because card games, sort of most card games have hidden information. You don't know what's in your opponent's hand. And, you know, that whole, what is going on with my opponent? What's in their hand? What am I doing? That's sort of central to card games. But a, there's a lot of people who really enjoy board games. And what they enjoy about board games is how everything's spread out in front of them. They can see it all and it's their turn and they can see, you know, they can see everything. And so New Frontiers, you know, almost everything is right out on the table. A third hmm. criticism of new of uh, race for the galaxy is people. Your strategies are often dictated by the six cost developments that can sort of organize and reward a cohesive set of cards in your tableau. Sure. And a lot of people are like, I don't like, you know, I really enjoy building my strategy on the fly, you know, uh, keeping track of various sitzes as they come in and going, oh, am I going this way? Am I going that way? But a lot of people really hate it. They want to see the sitzes and, you know, the, the, the big developments. They want to see them and go, okay, that's what I'm aiming for. They want to be able to construct a strategy from the start of the game instead of on the fly in the, during the hmm. game. So all of those aspects are what drove New Frontiers, because in New Frontiers, you see the developments. They differ from game to game, but for a given game, they're on the table. You see them right from the start, because you don't use the simultaneous uh, turn system. When it's your turn to act, you see the board state, right? Um you know, there's some hidden information in terms of what's, what's drawn from the world bag. But once you draw them, there they are and the players are drafting them. So Roll for the Gal... I mean, um, New Frontiers is very much driven from what is a board game and to appeal to people who like mm. those aspects of board games as opposed to card games. And knowing that we then made the physical presentation much more like a board game. Card games tend to be small and portable. Well, we went for these big worlds and these nice plastic goods and, uh, you know, the um, developments that had that were shaped like the diamond symbol somewhat, uh, echelon shaped. And, you know, we went for a production that emphasizes board game presence. And one of the things we've tried to do with the Race for the Galaxy series of games, and that includes some upcoming projects, is to have each game feel very distinct and like it has its own reasons for existence. New Frontiers is Race for the Galaxy as a board game and it emphasizes a lot of board game aspects as opposed to card game aspects. So I've only played... Race for the Galaxy and Roll for the Galaxy. I haven't played New Frontiers, though I want to. 
But no? by board game geek standards, it doesn't look like it performed quite as well as race or role. Uh, why do you think that was? I think it performed fine, right? It's up in, mm-hmm. I don't know, the 600s or so on, which is a perfectly respectable oh, yeah. um, rating. Which is still great, yeah. Right. And I think, you know, Race for the Galaxy, well, a lot of card game players love that. And they're not necessarily looking for a board game experience. But I've certainly met people for whom New Frontiers is their favorite iteration, that they really Mm. like the board game. And New Frontiers is a later game, right? And therefore, it's still, you know, taking time for people to like. I think now it only appeared on Board Game Arena last year. So, you know, I think more people are still finding it. It's curious how just how that can happen sometimes, whether it's part of the the algorithm or even just what's going on in a current year. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of In the Hall of the Mountain King. Have you played that one? I have not played that. It's uh, it's by Jay Cormier and Graham Johns. It came out a couple of years ago. It's it's an excellent game, and it's I think it's ranked five hundred something. When I mean, it, in reality, it really should be much higher. But it's it's curious to encounter games like that. That for whatever reason. Right. I mean, sometimes the game just doesn't hit a particular zeitgeist. I think Dice Realms is mm-hmm. fighting that. It just is, ah. you know, slightly out of step with where people are in the moment. Um, some of it is that there are just so many games coming out. I mean, over 4,000 games <laughs> produced every year. You know, we had a a smaller number during the actual pandemic, but, you know, things are back in full flood. And so what used to be the top 100 in some sense is the top 400 now, right? And what used to be, Mm. you know, you'd find these hidden gems in the 200 to 500 range is now hidden gems in the 500 to 2000 range. Yeah, good point. You know, I think that people are... still adjusting to just how many titles and good titles are coming out from lots of talented designers, lots of talented publishers. Um, Board gaming is an expanding hobby, and there's just a lot of content being produced every year. Which is a beautiful thing. It gives that much more opportunity to see uh, truly incredible games to come out. Right. But, you know, just like movies, there are you know, movies that fail when they first come out that later become cult classics and are recognized mm. as, as being really good movies. And, but, you know, with so many coming out, things get lost. Not everything bubbles up. And, you know, that's true of board games as well. Well, looking to the future, um, we're sitting here recording this in January of 2023, going to release the same month. So coming up into this year, uh, can we expect to be seeing a number of more productions from you? Well, um, Jump Drive Terminal Velocity is supposed to ship by the end of uh, January. Uh, I'm told that by the publisher uh, that they are in the warehouse. So they are should be appearing on store shelves like in the next week. Um, okay. You know, and uh, the Rio Grande warehouse is in Chicago. So I expect that, you know, Wisconsin and Ohio and Illinois will get it first. And then it'll gradually spread out over the next two weeks uh, to more places. 
Um, so that's, uh, I just did a preview that uh, Eric Martin um, uh, put out on Board Game Geek uh, talking about it. And uh, Terminal Velocity I was an expansion I never expected to make in the sense that I always expected, you know, Jump Drive's expansion would be Race for the Galaxy. You know, that if you like Jump hmm. Drive and wanted more, move on to Race for the Galaxy. But it turns out that there's definitely an audience, there's a lot of overlap, but there's an audience who just enjoy the simplicity of Jump Drive the fact that it's a clean filler game that they can play two or three times in a row and they don't want the extra strategy and tension and you know of uh of of race for the galaxy and so jump drive terminal velocity is an expansion for those people and i'm quite happy with it and I worked with someone on BGG on this to add a solo game that he had previously, this is Eric Kaminsky, who had he had previously released for Jump Drive. And I invited him to add it into uh, the published expansion and to make it work with all the new content in that expansion. And so I was very happy and grateful that he was willing to work with me and he did a wonderful job. All right. Well, it sounds like we've got a couple things to be looking forward to this year from you. Yes, there's a lot more projects. Um, one of the problems I had during lockdown is that my gaming group, my local gaming group, shut down and hasn't restarted. Mm. And I oh, really need to be able to play test because I do so much polishing of my games. And only recently has I have I started some playtesting with some uh, uh, people. Uh, some of the products I did during lockdown, such as uh, the Raise Arcana, Perlay, and Peary, I did entirely with remote testers. Mm. And, you know, that's a slower process. So a lot of this year is I'm getting a lot of games that have been delayed by the pandemic off my plate. Uh, in some cases, we're adding additional features. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of new things will be coming, but I can't talk about them until they're actually off my plate <laughs> and printed and there are release dates and they get announced by the publisher. But yeah, there's a lot of things coming. All right. I guess we'll just have to be patient then. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, Tom, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on. Okay, thank you for having me on it, and I hope that some of this information will be useful for your audience. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been the Tabletop Shop Podcast, featuring our special guest, Tom Lehman. If you enjoyed this content and want to see more, please leave us a like and hit that subscribe slash follow button to show your appreciation. Also, feel free to leave a comment to let us know what other special guest you'd like to see on the show. Thanks for stopping by the shop.